So there has been a lot of interest in prosthetic and specifically neuroprosthetic development. Um, you know, and it comes and it comes in waves to you know to, to be sure. Um, you know, oftentimes a lot of the push has happened historically from at least in the United States from the federal government. Uh, the mm -hmm. federal government is a big proponent of developing technology, especially rehabilitative and restorative technology for veterans and other and civilians with uh, you know living with mm -hmm. um, spinal cord injury, um, artificial um, and having to use artificial limbs um, or different things of that nature. So the, a big push historically has been from the federal government. Mm -hmm. um, I think what's changed in the last you know five or, or five or so years is that. Now there is a commercial aspect to this. Yeah. There is commercial interest. Um, there has always been, I would say, perhaps a public fascination with the idea of prosthetics and neuroprosthetics, but it's it's become uh, more you know, ubiquitous now, it's become more mainstream, I think largely because there is a commercial interest. Hello and welcome to the latest episode of Heads Talk with me, Elaine Pringle-Schwitter, the podcast where we talk to C-level executives, leaders of institutions and heads of multinationals. One of the current topics they talk, we listen. Can you imagine getting into a business or a market where you actually spend a hundred billion plus on a piece of paper? Are you kidding me? It was like a frying pan of the head. I got nothing against CFOs. It was not just the job of a lifetime, it was the job of a thousand lifetimes. My guest today is a professor and a biomedical engineering scientist. One of his main focuses is on the development and control of brain-machine interface neuroprosthetic technologies to restore function to the nervous system after the damage to a spinal cord or a stroke. His work was featured in the 2019 documentary I Am Human and he is considered an international expert in his field. We continue the Neurotech series with a conversation about the research and work around functional electrical stimulation-based systems and the end goal of restoration to lost or compromised bodily function. But before we get into that, here's a brief message. U.S. Private Capital Forum Go Real 2023 launched now until the end of March, with on-demand sessions offering attendees the utmost flexibility to access industry-specific content and deals on their terms. It will bring together over 100 speakers from across Europe over a broad agenda covering private equity, venture capital, real estate and private debt. For details, visit www.eurosforum.org. Heads Talk podcast with your host Elaine Pringle-Schwitter. Professor Bolu Ajiboye is the Elmer Lincoln Lindset Associate Professor of Biomedical Engineering at Case Western Reserve University. He holds an appointment as a biomedical engineering scientist at the Louis Stokes Cleveland VA Medical Center. Professor Ajiboye's research focuses on understanding natural muscle coordination patterns involved in motor coordination and how these patterns can be used in neuroprosthetic systems to restore loss or compromise functions through FES, Functional Electrical Simulation. Academically, he has a master's and a doctorate degree from Northwestern University. 
a dual Bachelor of Science degree in Biomedical and Electrical Engineering and a minor in Computer Science from Duke University. Let's begin. So without further ado, I'd like to welcome Professor Ajiboye, aka Bolu, to this series on Heads Talk. Happy to have you here today. Thank you, Elaine, for having me. Uh, so, so tell me about your journey to where you are today, biomedical engineering and a professorship at Case Western Reserve University. Yes. Yeah, so again, thank you for having me. Um, mm -hmm. and as you mentioned, I did my undergraduate work in biomedical and electrical engineering. Um, when I was younger, my parents always got me interested in science and medicine mm -hmm. and I had an affinity for Know, math and robotics and I wanted to be in a field that allowed me to use you know, that skill set and apply it to solving problems of human health mm. and biomedical engineering was a great a great uh, way that these that these come together being able to use engineering principles uh, to to solve problems of human health so I did my undergraduate at Duke University I got my mm -hmm. doctorate at Northwestern University and at Northwestern, I did my doctorate focusing on understanding uh, natural motor control. Mm -hmm. and, then when, and then what happens when that motor control is compromised in different neurological injuries or traumatic injuries, such as stroke or, or uh, amputation. And so my work was focused on developing uh, prosthetic limbs, particularly for people who had lost their limbs. Mm -hmm. um, I transitioned after my doctorate to Cleveland, Ohio, to start working um, not with people who had lost their limbs, but with people who had um, been paralyzed and had lost mm -hmm. use, of, use of their mm -hmm. limbs. Uh, and there was a, a unique opportunity to focus on developing technolo two technologies, which we'll talk about uh, during yeah. our time here. The first being functional electrical stimulation, or FES, which is a well-established technology for using electrical stimulation to restore function to people who had lost it due to paralysis, spinal cord mm -hmm. injury. And then the second technology, which I found really fascinating, was development of brain-machine interfaces or brain-computer interfaces, BMIs, BCIs, which allowed, it, which allowed us to tap into the um, uh, functions of cortical circuits un underlying motor function, mm -hmm. decipher or decode um, movement intent, and then use those signals to control external devices such as cursors on a computer screen, or in the case of people that we work with, their own limbs reanimated through functional electrical stimulation. Okay, okay, that's good. Um, thanks for that. I um, just want to know if if there's a difference in terms of the terminology between, between BMI and BCI. Um, there's not a huge difference. They're used fairly interchangeably. Um, BCI may be more specific because a lot of the inception of this uh, work was focused on using uh, brain activity or cortical activity to control, for example, the movements of a cursor on a computer screen or to interact with some software such as a speller um, on a computer. And so the, the, the phrase BCI or brain computer interface was coined. Um, I prefer the phrase, I, I prefer the terminology BMI, brain machine interface, because mm -hmm. it, it denotes the fact that we can actually use this technology beyond computer interactions. Um, there are many laboratories, uh, particularly in the U.S. and also around the world, that focus on connecting or allowing people to control machines, robots, robotic arms, and other things with their, uh, with their thoughts, you know, with, with, with the mm -hmm. uh, changes in the brain activity. 
our focus, as I mentioned, is reconnecting people's hand and arm back to their brain, you know, after they've suffered a spinal cord injury resulting in paralysis. And so we use the term BMI or brain machine interface mm. uh, to, to be more general about the possibility of this technology. Right. Yeah, I was just curious about that because I could see in uh, some of the research work I, I did, I could see that you were using that terminology more so than BCI, whereas I know others were using BCI and just want to know what was the difference between the two. Um, we're going to delve really into the work that you're doing, but I, I think perhaps we should look at how far the development of um, prosthesis has come. Um, perhaps take us on another journey, if you like. Um, give my listeners sort of a sense of the prosthetics of yesteryear from being a tool to allow rudimentary functions to today's version of it, which is effectively operated by the brain. Sure. Um, so the term prosthetics is a very general term, which basically means replacing a lost function. Um, so sometimes you'll hear the term prosthetics, you'll hear the term orthotics. You know, orthotics means basically augmenting a compromised mm -hmm. function. But the term prosthetics is very general, and it means, again, replacing a function that has been lost, perhaps due to some injury, whether that be an amputation or mm -hmm. in the case of the people that we work with, um, you know, paralysis. So when most people think hear the term prosthetics, you know, from yesteryear, they think of, um, you know, devices for people who have lost their limbs and specifically mm -hmm. think of body power prostheses. So... You know, if, if for those of, for your listeners who are perhaps a bit older, perhaps they remember um, artificial limbs that were yeah. controlled by by cables and that had hooks and essentially would require people to shrug their shoulders or perform some movement to cause the device mm. to open or close. And so this is what I think people you know, think about historically in terms of yes. Uh, yes. prostheses, artificial limbs, or specifically body part prostheses. If fast mm -hmm. forward, you know, still focusing on people with amputations, um, body-powered prostheses have developed into what we call myoelectric prostheses, which are um, electronic devices which have motors and which um, basically open and close the hand or extend and flex the elbow. But the difference is, instead of being controlled by, you know, somebody shrugging your shoulders, they're controlled by muscle activity or muscle electricity. What we know what we know as the EMG or elect electromyogram signal. Mm -hmm. That's an electrical signal which is a byproduct of muscle contraction. So for somebody with an amputation, if they if, when they contract the limb, we're able to pick up that electrical signal using electrodes either on the surface of the skin or embedded in the muscle. And we're able to capture that signal and then use it to operate a, a myoelectric prosthesis. Okay. Mm -hmm. So, so that category of prosthetics focuses on people restoring function to people who have uh, lost their limbs. Um, mm -hmm. Another category of prosthetics, and the, the category that I work in, is what we term neuroprosthetics. Mm -hmm. Neuroprosthetics, in this case, what we are doing is we are trying to connect the um, the device that restores function to prosthesis directly back to the nervous system, whether it be the peripheral nervous system, the nerves and the muscles of, of the arm, or the central nervous system, in, the, in this case, the brain. Um, we've known, you know, I, I think it was the late 60s or so, there was some seminal work that was done by investigators here um, in the United States, um, Eberhard Fetz, 
which showed that if you give a, a non-human primate feedback of what their neural signals are doing, um, that non-human primate can actually volitionally change the, um, the activity of, a, of a, even a single neuron. Okay, so they did a very nice experiment where they were able to record from a single neuron, show mm -hmm. the non-human primate um, some visual representation of that activity, and the non-human primate was able to essentially change the activity of that single neuron to perform a simple task on a computer on, on a computer screen. Mm -hmm. So that fundamental basis of electrophysiology, and more specifically neuromodulation, mm -hmm. what we call neuromodulation, has set the foundation for the field of neuroprosthetics, where we've went from a non-human primate being able to control a single the activity of a single neuron to now humans with chronic electrode implants being mm -hmm. able to control the activity of many neurons to, to control an external device. Mm -hmm. Early on, that those external devices were, again, as I mentioned, a computer cursor. Mm -hmm. um, there have been a number of very prominent and successful studies showing human participants with chronic electrode implants controlling uh, robotic arms and hands with, with high dexterity. Um, and then our work, you know, culminating in our work to date, showing humans with paralysis using chronic brain implants to control movements of their own limb that are being stimulated by functional electrical stimulation. Mm -hmm. I think what was interesting in doing this series is that when I spoke to, you know, a number of the guests, they talked about sort of neuroprosthetics and prosthesis uh, sort of research and development in the some in the sixties. You've said it as well. Some mentioned in the eighties, but I, I sort of get the feeling that it's only now it the I don't know the explosion or the the I don't know maybe perhaps it's the commercialization. I don't know. Why does it feel like it's only now that it's becoming prevalent? I don't know. So there has been a lot of interest in prosthetic and specifically neuroprosthetic development. Um, you know, and it comes and it comes in waves to you know to, to be sure. Um, you know, oftentimes a lot of the push has happened historically from at least in the United States from the federal government. Uh, mm -hmm. The federal government is a big proponent of developing technology, especially rehabilitative and restorative technology for veterans and other and civilians with uh, you know living with mm -hmm. um, spinal cord injury. Um, artificial um, and having to use artificial limbs um, or different things of that nature. So the, a big push historically has been from the federal government yeah. and, you know, and some, you know, smaller foundations. Mm -hmm. um, I think what's changed in the last, you know, five or, or five or so years is that now there is a commercial aspect to this. Yeah. There is commercial interest. Um, there has always been, I would say, perhaps a public fascination with the idea of prosthetics and neuroprosthetics, but it's it's become uh, more you know, ubiquitous now, it's become more mainstream, I think largely because there is a commercial interest. People are, companies and individuals are are um, looking or you know asking the questions, how do we make them more accessible, you know, beyond research devices mm -hmm. or devices that are you know, only accessible mm -hmm. by a small, uh, small um, you know, population of people. Mm -hmm. And and I think it's a wonderful thing, you know. It's got you know for you know from many different sources, it's gotten a lot of publicity. Um, and I think what it's done is it's raised, essentially raised the platform 
and raised the possibilities and, and, and accelerated the development um, in this mm -hmm. field. But uh, I take it there is a bit of a struggle in commercializing something like this, surely? Um, there are struggles. I, you know, one of the challenges of uh, of medical devices in general is that there is, there is a long road to commercialize any sort of medical device. Mm. You have, of course, you know, regulatory obligations that you yes. first and foremost have to meet, which take into account first and foremost the safety of any potential user. Um, beyond that, you know, there is the commercial aspect or the business side, which can have its challenges depending on um, the market, if you will. Now, so the population that I work with, which are people with, you know, with high cervical spinal cord injury resulting in, in chronic and severe paralysis, you know, fortunately, it's a fairly small population compared to other, you know, mm. larger neurological disorders. Um, the challenge is that because it's a small population, there are, there tend, there historically has been some um, challenges in terms of commercializing the technology. Um, but again, because of the uh, platform, you know, and the eyes that are on this, there are, there are new interests, if you will, in terms of commercializing mm -hmm. you know, this specific technology. Now, there is a there is a successful history of many companies, you know, international companies like there's Medtronic in the United States and Boston mm -hmm. Scientific, other companies which have successfully commercialized many different neuromodulation uh, based technologies to address a number of neurological disorders. Um, but the focus that you know, the, the focus of my research, you know, which is developing mm -hmm. computer interfaces, um, it's relatively new in terms of the commercial partners. Although again, there are mm -hmm. a number of successful commercial partners that have gone beyond the startup phase. And then there are mm -hmm. many that are still at the startup mm -hmm. phase uh, mm -hmm. present day. Mm -hmm. And I, I suspect the explosion is also down to AI, machine learning, deep learning, all that sort of stuff. Yeah, so AI machine learning is prevalent in the sense that it allows us to um, basically process big data. You know, so one of the key points is that when we are recording, um, you know, cortical, you know, brain information, or recording activity from, you know, many, many neurons, you know, you know hundreds and mm -hmm. some thousands mm -hmm. of neurons. It's a lot of data. You know, we record from yeah. the brain. Yeah. Uh, Thirty thousand times a second, and you know what machine learning can allow us to do is is understand patterns of neural activity, patterns of brain activity, and how they relate to um, you know desired movements, um, external stimuli, um, things that may that may take us a bit longer to understand. We can use you know, statistical inferences, uh, machine learning approaches to better understand the information that's in the data sets that we collect. Hmm. Okay, let's dive um, deeper into today's prosthetics. Um, I, you know, I honestly struggle to fathom the the ingenuity of, of the work you do. I read about um, what was it about computer ports into the skull connected to the motor cortex of the brain, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Uh, just please give, please give me and my listeners an understanding of the engineering behind this. Sure. So. I will talk about two technologies, you know, FES and BMIs, and kind of take you through how each work, and then, you know, more specifically how they connect. So, mm -hmm. um, the first component of restoring uh, brain-controlled function is to be able to restore, you know, be able to reanimate the paralyzed limb, and we use functional electrical stimulation or FES to do this. 
Mm-hmm. FES is a technology which has been around for you know many decades, and we actually have a center here in Cleveland, Ohio, in the United States, called the Functional Electrical Simulation Center, which is part of the Lewis Stokes Cleveland VA Medical Center. And this center has been developing implantable technology that uses electrical stimulation to restore many different functions to people living with paralysis, both lower extremity paralysis, you know, paralysis of the of the legs mm-hmm. and the trunk and also upper extremity paralysis of the hands and the arms um, and things of that nature. So electrical simulation has successfully been used to restore the ability of people with paralysis to stand up, to take steps, mm-hmm. um, to um, to restore trunk stabilities for upright posture, which is critically important, for example, during wheelchair propulsion. Mm-hmm. Um, it assists people with, uh, with a spinal cord injury and the ability to, to cough. Um, to you know, for diaphragm pacing, uh, mm-hmm. for restoring pelvic function, including bladder, bowel, and sexual function. Um, you know many different functions. And then in my laboratory, and you know people that I collaborate with, uh, to restore upper extremity movements, movements of the arms, movements of the hand, including grasping and things of that nature. Mm-hmm. And essentially, the way that FES technology works is that using electrodes, which um, it can either be in, which can either be on the surface of the skin or which can be implanted directly in the muscle or which can be implanted around nerves. And there are different there are pros and cons to each one of those electro technologies. You essentially apply small amounts of electrical stimulation in a coordinated way to activate muscles of the periphery to create a, a functional movement. Mm. Um, and, so, and so that's functional electrical stimulation and we can later on going into details if needed about the different electro technologies. On the brain side, um, what we are doing is we're actually using implanted, chronically implanted microelectrode arrays. So these are arrays which are commercially available. They're made by a company called Blackhawk Microsystems. Um, the arrays are very small, four by four millimeters in size, and they actually penetrate the uh, cortical tissue about one and a half millimeters in depth. These arrays allow us to record the activity of individual neurons, and we record these activities 30,000 times a second. So we're getting mm-hmm. high resolution, mm-hmm. high resolution uh, cortical activity. And then essentially, um, we develop in my laboratory and other laboratories around mm-hmm. the world, we essentially develop algorithms to decipher or decode uh, those patterns of cortical activity into movement intent. So mm-hmm. once we can decipher or decode uh, the patterns of cortical activity into an intended movement, we can then convert that intended movement into uh, electrical stimulation signals, which will then reanimate the limb in the manner that we are uh, deciphering or decoding from the cortical activity. Okay. Okay. Thanks. So, so, yeah. So that's and that's that's actually only half the equation. Um, you know, for you know, many decades we've been focused on restoring movement control. Mm-hmm. Um, more recently, you know, the field and, and our lab as well, in particular, has focused on the other half of this equation, which is not just restoring movement, but also restoring uh, touch, restoring sensation. Mm-hmm. Um, touch is critically important in in our in our everyday life in terms of interacting. Yes, yes. In terms of being able to have. Uh, uh, in, in terms of being able to dex, 
uh, dexterously interact with objects, in terms of being able to interact with other people. Uh, touch, touch conveys a lot of information. And so we've been working you know, more recently on restoring both movement and touch. And the way that we restore touch is not from recording from the brain, but actually writing information back into the brain using electrical stimulation as well. And so, you know, we've been able to, you know, show the efficacy of that and as other labs have as well um, to create what we call this bi-directional neuroprosthesis, which would allow somebody with complete paralysis to think about uh, a reaching and grasping. Mm -hmm. Their arm would respond in a timely manner. They'd be able to pick up an object. They would feel the amount of pressure they're exerting on the object through sensors which are placed you know, on the hand or, or just under the skin. And then we would be able to stimulate their, uh, their cortex to yeah. weigh to them the amount of, uh, the amount of force that they are exerting as feedback. So that's, that's the vision. That's absolutely amazing. And, and thanks for this um, comprehensive answer to the, to the questions. Um, I hope my listeners are happy with that. Um, the, the next question is assuming, um, the limb has not been removed, or correct me if I'm wrong, but in terms of restoring motion prior to an accident or illness, on a scale of one to, to 10, so that me and my listeners can understand this, with 10 being back to full use, where are we today with this? Um, so we're definitely not at a 10, but we're also not at a one either. You know, there's still a lot that we are trying to understand in terms of um, how the brain represents or what we call encodes movement, mm -hmm. how the brain solves the very complex problem of coordinating the many, many, uh, what we call the field degrees of freedom that mm -hmm. are needed to perform complex movement. So how the brain coordinates all the different joints and all different fingers to be able to perform what seems like simple activity. Yeah. So there's a lot to be understood scientifically in that regard. Uh, but at the same time, the field has made enormous progress to being able to restore even you know, what some may call rudimentary function uh, to people with you know, living with chronic and severe paralysis. So mm -hmm. um, I don't want to give a number per se because I think, you know, I knew you wouldn't actually. I just right. different, different people would, you know, people would disagree and some people would be offended. I knew you wouldn't. But I will say again that there has been enormous progress in terms of developing the technology, um, in terms of showing you know, proof of efficacy, in terms of showing um, chronic safety of the devices, which is you know, one of the you know, most, mm -hmm. important, most important things. And so I am quite uh, happy and, and, and intrigued and excited about the future. Uh, yeah, you, you sound optimistic about the development and where you're going, and you talked about um, enormous progress, but I've, for my listeners, what's what is the enormous progress? I know you don't want to give a number, so I'm pushing you just one more time. Is it an eight? Is it a six? Is it a three? Um, well, it depends on where the starting line is. <laughs> um, I would say that we've made enormous progress. Um, well, let's give it a five. Okay, we've made enormous five. progress. Good. Okay, we've got a number. In, in terms of in terms of understanding um, electrophysiology, in terms of understanding neuromodulation, in terms of understanding how the brain. Uh, represents basic mm -hmm. and and to a lesser degree, uh, smell sensation. We were a little bit behind in terms of understanding how the brain represents touch, but um, you know, decades of work have have brought yeah. us to the point where it is conceivable that somebody with 
and it's been done. That's somebody who has suffered a severe spinal cord injury leading to paralysis mm-hmm. has the possibility of seeing some level of restored function. Now, I want to be very clear and say a few things. So number one, this technology is not curing spinal cord injury. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are many people working in the areas of, you know, of, of uh, neuroengineering uh, and neurorestoration focused on um, restoring the actual connection to the spinal cord after injury. We are not doing that. We are essentially circumventing the spinal injury by tapping into the cortical circuits, which underlie movement and sensation, mm-hmm. essentially taking a detour around the around the injury, um, taking the signals out of the brain into our uh, into our system, and then re- rerouting them back into the arm to create movement. Mm-hmm. So this is not a cure for spinal cord injury. Um, we, I would love if there was you know, if there was a you know a cure for spinal cord injury. Mm-hmm. I would love to be put out of business. That'd be great. Um, but essentially, the technology is an assistive technology. It, re- it restores function to a degree you know, that was lost as a result of the It's going in the right direction. And as I was, you know, when I've spoken to all the guests, it's similar um, to yourself in terms of the work that you're doing. It's it's bringing hope where hope wasn't there before. And we're, and we're, at some point, we're going to get there, aren't we? Okay. Yeah. That's that. That's the hope, and 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 I think that the field has shown significant process progress. Yeah. And not just in movement restoration, but you know we've seen that neuromodulation um, and electrical stimulation can be applied to a number of other applications. So you know there are applications in, in vision restoration. Uh, mm-hmm. Clearly, there's mm-hmm. applications in you know in in in, in uh, understanding and treating Parkinson's disease. Mm-hmm. other neurological uh, injuries and disorders. And so it's an exciting, the, the field of neuromodulation is yes. in the field overall and has shown enormous progress in many different respects. I think it's an exciting time at the moment. Okay, um, let's move on to a, a different topic. Um, you briefly um, touched upon it and I just want to cover it in greater detail here. Um, I'd like you to tell my listeners about the partnerships and the research activities with fellow institutions that you have on the work with um, veterans. This came up in my research and I um, I didn't want to sort of delve too much into it because I want you to talk about it to my listeners about what you're doing there and what has been achieved. Yes, yeah, so as I mentioned earlier, um, the, this work is, is primarily federally funded. So, um, you know, a number of our federal partners include the National Institutes of Health in the United States, um, the, the VA Medical Center. Um, mm-hmm. We also have funding from, uh, it's not only, it's the Department of Defense in the United States, but they specifically have a program focused on, um, you know, spinal cord injury research. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, a number of our federal, and then other, you know, funding agencies as well. So, you know, we're very fortunate to have mm-hmm. their support. Um, you know, institutionally, you know, this work locally is done at, as I mentioned, the Lewis Cleveland VA Medical Center. Also, have an appointment, a primary appointment at Case Western Reserve University. And so, and then there's also our clinical partners, which are university hospitals mm-hmm. here in Cleveland, Ohio. So there are a number of partners focused on this particular work as well. But we also have a history of working with other institutions. Um, you know, when I first joined. Uh, this field, you know, I started working 
uh, in a clinical trial called BrainGates, which was which was uh, headed by Dr. Lee Hochberg mm-hmm. at Massachusetts General Hospital. Um, and BrainGate uh, actually was, I would say, one of the first, if not the first, to actually show um, proof of concept of this chronic microelectrode array being implanted in human participant to uh, to control an external device. Um, there were some seminal papers published in the mid two thousands and in the early two thousand tens, you know, with you know by Dr. Hochberg and his team, and we've essentially built off built off of that. So, um, and then you know other partners at other other institutions around the U S, including Stanford University. Um, and unfortunately, you know, I'd say the field has grown by leaps and bounds since, you know, the mid-2000s, mm-hmm. um, where there are other institutions independently pursuing, um, you know, similar goals, you know, with different applications. Yeah. Um, one of the most fascinating recent applications, uh, you know, that has intrigued me is the use of this technology, not just for movement restoration, but also for res- restoration of speech. Um, mm-hmm. There are a number of Investigators on, you know, in at Stanford University, uh, University of California, San Francisco, here in the United States, um, that have focused on um, being able to decipher speech intents um, for people who, you know, who have speech impairment or speech loss, and have shown that using similar, you know, similar approaches, you can record neural activity. Um, from parts of the cortex which govern speech or you know, or or the the motor side of speech, um, and you can decipher movement intent and recreate intended speech even in the absence of the of the user speaking. So again, the applications of this technology and the research <laughs> grown by leaps and bounds, and it's really an exciting time to be in this field. There's so many tentacles to all of this. I mean, every time I talk to a guest, they just like now they always come with stuff that I think oh my goodness wow this is really incredible and it sort of makes me want to ask um, a number of questions associated with this um, latest technology development with speech but I'm afraid I have to move on I have to move on because time um, not permits us Um, I mentioned this um, briefly in the introduction but um, can you summarize what what took place at the event I am human I think it was um, in January this year wasn't it um, yes, so there are probably two major um, events that you're referring to. So I Am Human is actually a documentary which was produced, um, I think it came out in 2019 at the Tribeca Film Festival in New York City um, here in the United States. And essentially, it is a 90-minute foray into the field of neuromodulation. Extremely well done, um, and it follows three uh, individuals who have some um, some loss of function, and I won't I won't go into details because I don't want to spoil it for your uh, for your listeners. Okay. But it follows three individuals who have some uh, loss of function, and then it follows their personal lives, uh, the process that they go through in terms of making a decision as to whether or not they want to become, um, participate in experimental research and receive experimental uh, devices. Um, and and then it follows just their progress um, in in those different studies towards hopefully receiving some uh, restored function. Mm-hmm. One of the individuals that was highlighted in that movie is uh, is an individual by the name of Bill Kochavar, and he was our first research participant who received uh, the brain machine interface and the FPS technologies 
to restore function after his paralysis. So um, I'll just leave I'll just leave uh, your listeners with that teaser and encourage mm -hmm. them to, mm -hmm. to take a look at, at, at the film. Extremely well done. Um, it shows both the human side um, and the scientific side of neurotechnology and also brings up questions about, about ethics and what role technology mm -hmm. plays in terms of in terms of uh, restoring our lives and where is the boundary between human technology, what should that boundary be, where some of the ethical questions which arise, you know, with the, um, um, you know, with these technologies, things of that nature. So I think it's extremely well done. Um, and I encourage your users, uh, your listeners to, uh, to, to take a, uh, a look at it. Um, the second thing, which more recently uh, has come out is that we did have a, a short since on um, 60 Minutes, which you know, here in the United States and mm -hmm. internationally, which again um, follows uh, users of neuroprosthetic technology, one of whom is our current research participant, and again talks about and focuses more on the restoration of touch um, and, and what role this plays in terms of you know restoring life, restoring quality of life. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, Again, a very well done piece, um, and so again, I encourage your users to. Um, yeah, yeah, I think I've seen I've seen the video um, on YouTube, and I watched that as well as looked at. I think there was two or three articles I saw on specifically on that, so that was interesting. Um, let Let's end this episode of Heads Talk with this question, Versajipoye. Uh, if I were to talk to you in ten years' time, um, what do you think you'll be celebrating in your field or hope to celebrate as a, as a breakthrough, perhaps? Sure. So maybe a few things. So, you know, I, I, I really think that we are just at the very beginning of understanding the brain and how the brain uh, represents um, our environment or external stimuli. You know, presently, we are able to record from the brain in a fairly rudimentary manner. Say you know you were either recording you know very very small number of neurons a very small real estate of cortex or we have recordings of the whole brain but they're very diffuse you know they're not they don't have high resolution um, there are a number of initiatives you know both federally sponsored and and then you know locally sponsored focused on being able to record uh, from the entire brain with extremely high resolution mm -hmm. being able to do that I think is going to is going to uh, skyrocket this field uh, tremendously into the future. And just being able to get that massive amount of data um, about brain function, being able to understand brain states and how the brain changes, you know, to represent um, either in different either in different states or after injury. Um, mm -hmm. Just that opportunity to really understand cortical functions is going to tremendously change our field. So, so that's number one. That's what I'm really excited about. Both the development of the technology to do that and then fundamentally what we're going to learn in the fields of neuroscience so that's mm -hmm. cool. um you know more broadly and, and more and not more impactful but just as impactful uh, you know i'm excited about what this sort of technology is actually going to be able to do for people living with uh you know different afflictions neurological injury you know at the end of the day and this is where our this is where our work points to we are fundamentally interested in changing the lives, improving the lives of people living with, in, in, you know, in the case of what I work with, chronic spinal cord injury, or more broadly, neurological injury. Um, and I'm excited as to, um, you know, the possibilities of restoring 
life, restoring quality of life to people living with these injuries. And then ultimately being able to make this technology um, accessible. Um, I think at the end of the day, that's 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 what that's what we work for. It's to be able to again change the lives, enhance the lives of people living with these different neurological disorders. Mm. I think I think it's nice to be at the start of all of this because we we're going to see it all come to fruition. I think if we, if we remain alive, I think it'd be interesting to see how that develops. Um, Professor Bolu Ajiboye, a great contribution to this new text series. Many thanks for your time and insights. Thank you so much. I appreciate you having me. Thanks for joining me today on this episode of Heads Talk. Don't forget to subscribe to the show via my website, elainepringle.com forward slash Heads Talk, wherever you get your podcasts. Finally, I'd like to thank our sponsors, guests, and you for helping to make the show possible. Please join me next time where I'll be featuring more executives, C-suite leaders, and heads of multinationals. Heads Talk podcast with your host, Elaine Pringle-Schwitter.